Our scripture reading today will be taken from the 24th chapter of Luke. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. We're going to be looking at verses 36 to 43 as we continue on in this final chapter of this amazing gospel. Now, setting the stage for the context, those guys from Emmaus walk back to Jerusalem, and they show up to where the apostles are, and they're telling them what has happened in regard to Jesus Christ appearing to them and then disappearing. And here's what we read, beginning at verse 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself? Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Well, they still could not believe it. Because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Interesting information that Dr. Luke gives us there. May God add his blessing to the reading of the inspired text and the exposition later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, we bow before you today to thank you for being our great and glorious God. And we certainly, on this weekend, thank you that you are a God who is the author of our freedom. We realize that through the sacrifice of your precious Son that we've been seeing right here in this very Gospel of Luke, and through faith in him, you've given us freedom from sin, you've given us freedom from the Old Testament law, you've given us freedom from guilt and condemnation. Lord, you've also given us a great hope of eternal life, everlasting life, and we thank you for that. We also know, Lord, that you are a God who reveals yourself to be the author of all people and all nations. And we thank you that you've blessed us with the honor and privilege, and it is an honor and privilege, of living here in the United States of America. We realize that our freedoms here required many courageous sacrifices. Through these past 245 years, Many soldiers and sailors have defended these freedoms. They've laid down their own lives. And on this Memorial Day weekend, we thank you for each and every one of them. We ask that you would bless those who are presently serving in the armed forces. We ask that you'd bless their families, the mothers and the fathers and the mates and the children. We ask that you would let them sense that there are many, many people of this country, the vast majority of these people who love them and esteem them and support them. And Lord, as we just got done singing, our country needs thy mending. Our country needs thy help. Our leaders need thy help. We see from this passage that you are a very patient and caring God, and you do put up with people who have no faith, little faith, or fickle faith. But we would ask that in your grace and mercy, you would turn our leaders back to you, turn this nation back to truth, turn this nation back again so it truly is one nation under God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. How would you like to be the president of the United States? Some of you are going, I'd like that job. Uh, Forget your ego and forget your political party. 
Forget what you think about the job you could do. Just keep in mind what your life would be like if you had that job. Everywhere you go, you're going to meet people who think they can do your job better than you do. Every time you give a speech, no matter what you say in the speech, no matter how much you've prepared or how valid your argumentation or evidence, you'll be criticized and demeaned the moment it's over. Everything you do will be carefully scrutinized. Every move you make, everything you say will be challenged and hated by somebody. Everywhere you go, you'll have to be carefully guarded because there will be a lot of people out there that want you dead. And every day you'll be forced to make difficult decisions, and no matter what the decision is, half of the people will hate it and hate you. Boy, that sounds like a great job, doesn't it? Who would want that job? Well, there was an assignment that was much more severe than any of that. It was much worse than this, and that was the job Jesus Christ had to do to come here to this earth. Of all the assignments one could have, Jesus Christ had the most depressing and most dangerous. He had to leave, think about this, the splendor of heaven having been the second member of the Trinity, and he had to descend into a world of depraved sinners who, frankly, would hate him. And his assignment is you have to go there and let yourself get killed. Now, when Jesus Christ was here on earth, you would expect the lost, unbelieving world would make things difficult for him, make them as difficult as possible. I would expect that People that don't believe in him, they'd reject him, they wouldn't believe in him, they'd make fun of him. But you would not expect the same type of treatment from your own disciples. Those guys had traveled with Jesus Christ. They'd seen Jesus Christ. They'd seen him perform amazing miracles. I mean, when we went through biblical miracles study... In our doctrinal study of biblical miracles, we catalog just under 40 major miracles that Jesus did that these guys saw. They traveled with him and they listened to him. They listened to him tell them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I have to do that for the sins of the world, and then three days later I'm going to be raised from the dead. Now, you would think with them traveling with the Lord for three plus years, seeing all that stuff and listening to this, they should have been the most loyal, faithful, trustworthy, dependable, reliable soldiers on the face of this earth. But when Christ came back from the dead, which he told him he was going to do, after his resurrection, that's not what he found. He didn't find reliable soldiers. He found a bunch of troubled, miserable disciples who didn't even know what to believe when he's standing there with them in person. He must wonder, why in the world should we bother with them? At least that's what I would wonder. Why did he bother putting up with this nonsense? Why didn't he just go back up into heaven and let these unbelieving disciples wallow in their ignorance and pity? The answer to that is he knew what these guys would become. He put up with all of this unbelief of his own disciples based on the fact that he knew eventually they would get all of this straightened out in their faith and they would become dynamic witnesses for him and accomplish powerful things for him. 
Now, when Luke recorded this particular text in his gospel, it's not flattering to these guys. But Luke doesn't back away from that just because it's not flattering. He gives us a glimpse here as to how bizarre these guys had actually become. I mean, I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ is standing with these guys, and he has to spend time proving he's not a ghost. He has to spend time proving to them he's not a spirit being. This is just unreal. It's surreal. I mean, Christ has to spend time proving to his own close disciples, it's me and I'm real. And I want to make an application of this. If you don't base your faith on written scriptures, you can become a wacko as a believer. It's the written scriptures. And you'll certainly see it next week when he really launches into the written scriptures. It's the written scriptures upon which we build our faith. And there are three main actions that occur here. Number one, Jesus Christ reappears to his disciples. Notice verse 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. Now, at this point in time, Jesus Christ has already appeared to Mary. He's already appeared to Simon Peter and those two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. He had spent time with them. And they're there now telling these disciples everything when Christ shows up. They're actually in the process of relaying to the other disciples what they just went through. Now remember, we saw last time, as soon as Christ had vanished, they took off back for Jerusalem. Remember, it's a seven-mile hike. So let's say you're doing a 20-minute mile walk. You're looking at two-plus hours, two hours and some change, I'm sure their pace picked up a little bit. Maybe they got it down to 15-minute miles. But regardless, you're looking at about two hours plus to get back to Jerusalem. So what we've had from the time that Christ vanished when he was eating with them until this moment is about a two-plus-hour gap of time. So when Jesus shows up at this point, he's already appeared to at least four people in the room. He's appeared to Mary, Simon, Peter, and the two guys on the road to Emmaus. And they've already seen him. But boy, was this a shock. When Christ appears, reappears, as fast as he disappeared. I'm sure the two guys from Emmaus said, I don't know how he does this, but this is getting interesting. I mean, we're eating at a table with him a couple hours ago. He disappears, and now we're in the room talking to these disciples, and he reappears again, telling them what happened. I've been taping these old Gomer Pyle shows. I like these Gomer Pyle shows. They're just funny. And one minister said, I'm sure when Jesus showed up again here at this particular setting, these guys are probably going, surprise, surprise, surprise. That's what he typically says. Well, there are two parts to this that I want to show you. First of all, he reappears with a miracle. Verse 36, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. So Christ just shows up in the middle of this room. This is a miracle here. These guys, according to John 20, are locked tight in this room for fear of the Jews. They were thinking, well, they killed Jesus. Maybe they're coming after us next. So they literally locked themselves in a room. And the only way an average human can get into a room that's locked tight, and I'm sure this was barricaded tight, 
is that you'd have to knock on the door, identify yourself, have somebody open the door, or you'd have to bash in the door till it opens. I mean, when the police have to go into a building and no one's just letting them in, they have to use a sledgehammer or a hydraulic jack or they use a battering ram plus a crowbar. I mean, that's how they get in. And you'd have to do that if you were in this culture. Uh, They didn't have a hydraulic jack, but they sure had sledgehammers, and they would have had some type of crowbar, probably some type of battering board. But Jesus doesn't need any of that. He doesn't knock at the door. He just shows up in the middle of the room. That's what the text says. So what we would conclude from that is somehow he just passes through the door, passes through them, and stands right there in the middle of them. He did the same kind of thing years before in Nazareth. You'll remember he'd gone into that synagogue and he was proclaiming the truth in the synagogue and there were people there that hated him and wanted to kill him and the text says he just passed right through their midst. He obviously, miraculously, just shows up in this room. This is an amazing miracle. Just the fact that he's in this room in the midst of these disciples demonstrates his supernatural power. And again, I remind us again of this reality. You run into people, if I could just see some miracle... If I could just see some powerful miracle, I'd believe, well, look at this text. Didn't affect these guys. These guys actually knew Jesus Christ, and they physically are seeing a miracle right before their very eyes. He shows up in the middle of this room, and when he appears, they didn't believe. And frankly, people wouldn't today either. So the first part is he reappears with a miracle. The second part is he reappears with a grace message. Don't overlook that at the end of verse 36. Peace be to you. Literally, Erene humin, peace to you. Jesus Christ appeared, and the first thing he says to all of these guys who are doubting, non-believing, fickle people is, I want you to know you have peace with God. Now, those are important words for these guys to hear because they hadn't been the sharpest of boys. And when you think about this, it's an amazing grace message that he presents to them because nearly all of them had abandoned him. We learned that from Mark. One of this group had denied him three times. We learned that. These disciples refused to believe he was alive, even when eyewitnesses were saying he's risen from the dead. They didn't believe him. These disciples were hard-hearted to the truth of God, hard-hearted against the word of God. They were cowards locked in a room because they're so afraid, and they are ignorant of the word of God that he had taught them. So frankly, these disciples are one disastrous mess. This message Jesus could have brought them would have been one of rebuke. He could have brought them a message of punishment, of chastisement, not one of peace. But as confused and as idiotic as these disciples were, he brought them a gracious message of peace. And what this shows us is, even when you've made a mess of things, even when you've made some decisions that quite frankly, have really blown it. You can still have peace with God. You may be here today and be a hard-hearted individual. I mean, you're hard-hearted and hard-headed. You may be a person who is a religious person, 
but you just don't quite know what to believe. If you believe in the Lord and you turn your life over to the Lord, you'll have peace with God. These guys did. And it's a good thing that works aren't the issue for their salvation. Because had works been the issue of their salvation, these guys would have never made it. No one in this room would be saved. But Jesus Christ was here and went to that cross to make it possible for them and for us to have peace with God. It's his shed blood that justifies us, and it's his shed blood that makes peace with God. So when Jesus first shows up, it's a grace message, peace to you. His second action is the disciples respond to Christ. Verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. Their response proves they just don't have solid faith here. Because even though they have four people in the room saying he's alive, they don't believe really he's raised from the dead in the way they respond. There are six ways they respond. First of all, they were startled. It's an interesting word. Their emotions were surging when they saw this person who's standing right in the midst of their room. Secondly, they were frightened. They were so afraid they want to run. Total terror. It affects the breathing. That's what I understand. This particular word, emphobos, is a word that would indicate it affects the breathing. Their pulse is racing. I don't know if you've ever been in a fearful situation where the adrenaline is pumping, and I mean, and you, you're trying to get a handle on that, but if you've ever been in that type of situation, it's scary business. Years ago, when I was in Wyoming, I was hunting elk deep in the mountains, and this guy comes out in the middle of this field, and he's scary-eyed, and I had just heard five shots, boom, 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 just like that. And I thought, what in the world was that? And this guy comes out in this field that I'm watching, 320 yards. I still remember the distance because I paced it off, wanting to know what a shot would be across this thing. Anyway, he comes out in the middle of this field. So I went out. I said, hey, you need help or something? Is that you shooting? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I got to get out of here. How do I get out of here? I said, well, what's your problem? He said, I've been charged by a moose. And I tried to fire the gun just to scare him away. I fired the gun in the air, and he just came out, and he came at me, and I just want to get out of here. I said, well, follow that trail. It'll take you out. So I go back and I sit down and here comes this moose. He sees me. He puts his head down and he starts doing that just like you would do in a bullfight. That's what this moose does. And he starts running straight across this field at me. I want to tell you, terror is in my blood. My pulse is racing. My adrenaline is flowing. I'm thinking, I'm not the guy who did it. It's the guy going down the trail. Leave me alone, but he's coming straight at me. So I've got a 300 H&H Magnum in my hand. I stand up. I put the sights right on him, take the safety off, and I don't want to shoot this moose. I just don't want anything to do. I'm screaming at him, stop, 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 and he finally stops. But I understand the terror that goes on when you are in one of those situations where the emotions are surging, and that's what's happening here. These guys are having the emotions surge because they're seeing this one stand in their midst. But then... The third response is they're mystical. Look at what verse 37 says. They thought they were seeing a spirit. They're not even thinking rationally here. Instead of them thinking, you know, this is the Son of God here, they're thinking we've got a ghost standing here, a spirit being. They thought that before out there when Jesus came walking on the water. I mean, 
He had to show them it was him, really. He's the God-man who could reverse laws of physics, and he could just walk across the top of water. And they thought at that point, too, he was a ghost. Then he got in the boat with them, and he said, well, it's me. And so they're reverting right back to that. But here's the point I want you to see. If you base what you believe on your experiences, or you base what you believe on your feelings, you'll end up with bizarre theology that is not sound. There are believers who are just confused. They just don't know what to believe, because they're not basing it on an actual understanding of the written scriptures. Had these guys thought for a moment, said, hey, now wait a minute. The scriptures teach us that he is going to rise from the dead. And the scriptures teach us that he would be crucified and on the third day come back to life. This would not have happened. But you see, they're thinking in ways that are emotional and irrational. And that's what people in religion can do. They can be true believers, but they base their faith on their experiences and their feelings, and they just get way out there into never, never land. Which brings us to the fourth response. They were troubled. Verse 38, why are you troubled? That word, Jesus says, I'm looking right into your minds. You're mentally disturbed. Why are you so disturbed by this? They were doubting. That's what Jesus says in verse 38. Why did doubts arise in your heart? Jesus could look right into their minds, right into their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're believing. And then he says they were unbelieving in verse 41. Well, they still could not believe it. They had no faith. Now Jesus is standing right there in front of them. He's standing there talking to them, and this is their response. This is your best team. This was the response of the team chosen by Jesus Christ to represent him. They'd lived with him, traveled with him, ate with him, commissioned by him. He'd sent them out to do ministry on his way to Jerusalem. He sent them out two by two, and they went out. He empowered them to do supernatural things. These were the guys supposedly devoted to Jesus Christ, and this is how they respond. He told them on multiple occasions, I'm going to be killed, I'll rise again from the dead. But when he did it, instead of them rejoicing, they think he's a ghost. And they just had trouble believing this. I want to borrow an illustration I heard a minister give that perhaps we can relate to a little bit. Suppose you get home this afternoon and you get a phone call from a telemarketer, and if you're like me, you probably won't answer the phone, but let's say you did answer the phone. And the telemarketer says, you just won the sweepstakes. You'd probably have trouble believing that. You'd probably, it's a scam, that's what you'd think. It's a scam. But then let's say tomorrow somebody shows up at your door and actually knocks on your door and says, well, here's the check for the sweepstakes you won. He said, I still would have trouble believing that. And you probably would. You'd think this is some type of scam thing. Well, apparently that was the frame of mind these guys were in. Jesus shows up and he's talking to them and he's teaching them and they're just having a hard time buying into this. So he thirdly reacts to his disciples. Verse 38 says, and he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. And as you see, I have. Jesus had fulfilled everything 
he said he was going to do, and ultimately not one of these guys believe him. Probably most of us would have said, what's the use? Let's just get out of here. But he reacts two ways. He questions their thinking. I like that. Why are you troubled, and why are there doubts arising in your hearts? Basically, he says, what's wrong with you guys? What's wrong with your minds? What's wrong with your heart? And by the way, you do get a good look here at what real faith is. It's something that starts with your mind, but it also affects your heart. Jesus said, what's wrong with you? Why are you so disturbed and perplexed? at all of this. Why are you questioning this? He knows what's happened to their minds and hearts. But secondly, he disproves their thinking in verses 39 to 43. I just think this is one of the most pathetic things that you have here. Jesus Christ actually has to prove he's alive. He's standing there talking to them. And he has to prove he's alive, that he's not a spirit being. If it weren't so sad, it'd be funny. So he challenges these guys, and he challenges their physical senses. And first of all, he challenges their sense of sight. He says in verse 39, see my hands and my feet. He obviously holds his hands out, and he lets them see his feet, and he says, take a look at this. Look at my hands and my feet. Take a look at this, you goofs. I added that part. (laughs) He didn't do that, I did. That's where the nails have been driven. And I'm assuming those nail prints are right there invisible. So he says, look at my hands and look at my feet. See the puncture wounds. I'm the same person that hung on that cross. The sight of the scars in the hands and feet of Jesus Christ becomes a wonderful friend for those who've trusted him. Because I tell you this, Jesus Christ will be the only person in heaven whose body has scars. And no matter how sinful or scarred your life has been, his scars will take away your scars. But the sight of the scars in his hands and feet will be a damning enemy for those who've rejected him. So if you honestly think you can somehow work out some deal by your works to get you into heaven, one day you'll look at those scars in his hands and feet, and they will guarantee you everlasting condemnation. Those scars bring great joy to those who've believed in the Lord. Those scars bring great joy because it shows we have peace with God. So he says, look at my hands and feet. Then he says, touch him. In verse 39, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus said, I invite you to touch my hands and feet. Look at me and touch my hands and feet. No spirit being has this. Now, our new bodies, obviously, are going to be comprised something like our old bodies, but they're not going to be subject to the limitations of our old bodies, and they can't die again. So these new bodies can obviously do things that are incredible. He walked into a room without opening a door, and he travels from one place to another somehow. I'm sure he didn't walk the seven miles back to Jerusalem, 
But yet also there was some visible reminders that he was who he was. There were those scars in his hands and feet. And the Apostle John apparently did this. The Apostle John apparently did touch the hands and feet because some 60 years later, when he writes 1 John, he says in verse 1, What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John did touch him. Now you would be thinking now, well, that's got to be enough evidence. I mean, right there. I mean, he shows up in their midst and he's talking to them and he shows them his hands and feet. You would think, well, that's enough right there. So verse 41 says they didn't believe it. While they still could not believe, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything to eat? So he challenges their reason. The final evidence that Christ gives to these guys to prove he's not a ghost. The humiliation of this is just mind-boggling to me. He's got to prove to these guys he is who he says he is, and he's showing them his hands and feet, and they still aren't buying into this. So he says, do you have something to eat? No spirit being would ask for something to eat. And he's given a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it. To the great chagrin of vegetarians. He took a piece of meat here, fish meat, and ate it. I once read an article written by a student in a seminary who was writing a diatribe against hunting and fishing and eating meat. I thought, well, have you ever read the Bible if you're in seminary? And you'd think you'd read the Bible because Jesus not only supports fishing, he eats fish right here. I don't think he's eating this because he's hungry. He's famished. He's doing this to try to show these disciples that it's really him. He has to prove to his own disciples it's him. And what this does teach us about that new body is that it's not hindered by It's wounds, it's not hindered by food, it's not capable of dying again. After all he'd gone through, to me it's just another slap in his face, but in amazing grace. He puts up with these guys, he obviously sits down and eats with them and fellowships with them. That is the same amazing grace he offers us. And perhaps you're here today and you're a lot like these guys. You're hard-hearted and you're hard-headed. You lack faith. You're troubled by all kinds of things. The same amazing grace that was available to these guys is available to you. Jesus Christ will fellowship with you if you invite him to. No matter how unbelieving you have been, no matter how much you've scarred your life, no matter how many problems, he'll forgive you and fellowship with you if you believe in him. I want to leave us with two concluding thoughts from this text this morning. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves he's the only person who can save you from your sins. Understand this point. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves he's the only person who can save you from your sins. You know, sometimes I think people think of the resurrection like it's just a nice little addendum to the crucifixion. This is the crux of the gospel here. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the whole key to salvation. So let's say you come from the Catholic Church. There have been 266 popes. They're all dead. 
Let's say you come from the Muslim world. Muhammad died in AD 632. Let's say you've been dabbling around Buddhism. He died in 480 BC. Let's say you've been drawn to Mormonism. Joseph Smith died in 1844. Brigham Young died in 1877. Oh, maybe you're drawn to Christian science. Mary Baker Eddy died in 1910. Or Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986. Or Pentecostalism. You're caught up in the emotion of Pentecostalism. Agnes Osmond died in 1937. Pick your denomination. Find out who it was that started the denomination or the religion. They're all dead. They can't give you life. There's only one who can. And that's Jesus Christ. In fact, without this resurrection, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, we're still dead in our sins. So you need to believe in the only one who can save you from your sins, Jesus Christ. That's what this resurrection proves. The second thought I leave you with is this. Base your faith on the written scriptures. Base your faith on the written scriptures, not on how you feel, not on what you claim are your experiences, not on what you claim you've seen God do. Now, it becomes pretty clear to me from a text like this, and certainly we'll see it, Lord willing, next Sunday, God does want us to use our minds. Our minds work in harmony with our heart. He does not want us gullible simpletons. He wants us to use our mind to know and believe the written scriptures. And if you will purpose to do that, you will have a faith that is sound. And it won't be fickle like these guys. Let's pray. If you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we give you an opportunity right now to invite him in to be your Savior, right where you're at. Just admit the fact that you're a sinner, and you are a sinner because we all are. And invite Jesus Christ into your life to save you, because he's the only one who can. Our Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures. We thank you for the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to put up with all of this that he went through. Lord, it is just beyond us to figure out why you would even care about people like us. We're so messed up in so many ways. But thank you for your grace and goodness and patience and kindness. And we certainly thank you for the scriptures. That solidifies our faith. And I pray as we wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back and get us to catch us up in the air at the rapture, that we will be people, men and women and boys and girls, dedicated to understanding the word of God so that we may have a sound faith, a sane faith, a sensible faith, and a spiritual faith as well. For anything that you've done here today, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.